0: Hello, this is Home Baking, a podcast about adventures in home baking through ingredients, history and culture. And today I bring you a very special episode all about pavlova. And I'm going to be giving you some insight about how to personalize pavlovas, really make them your own, layering up different flavors within it through the medium of meringue, cream and fruit. And we are also going to be talking about the history of pavlova and why it's disputed and what the real deal is what the real story is and what that might show us about ourselves we are going to be talking about the kind of hidden ratios um, that you can use to hack and make your own recipes um the little hacks I mean and then we're also going to be talking about two recipes one is for cherry and basil Pavlova it's might sound strange but trust me it's good (laughs) the other is for a sugar plum fairy pavlova torte which is a very silly name but it's just um really delicious and I just thought it sounded cute but it's essentially like a cake made with three different three layers of meringue decorated with some meringue on the outside if you want and uh, then you layer it up with cream and um, macerated fruit So, it's it's basically a layered pavlova. Um, So, that's what we're going to be talking about today. And I can't wait to get started. little bit of housekeeping just to start with it's lovely to have you here thank you so much for listening I love talking to you about all things baking it really makes my day week year whatever (laughs) all of the things and just in case you haven't already please go and subscribe to the newsletter it's homebaking.substack.com and that's where you can find written recipes and you can find some writing that's not an exact transcript of the show, but it kind of has got a bit of a summary there as well. So if you want to just look back at something, uh, then you can go there. Or if you want to, yeah, if you want to make sure you've got all the quantities right of a recipe, that's, that's where you need to go. All right. So without further ado, let's talk a little bit about pavlova and its history so I've called this section meringue without borders the thorny origins of pavlova Um, and we're going to be talking a bit about pavlova and its importance in Australia and New Zealand so this is a really popular dish in both of those countries I've read that I think this is right that that New Zealanders prefer it a bit crispier, and Australians prefer it a bit more ma- marshmallowy. Please correct me if I'm wrong. What I have learned as well is that Australians um really like passion fruit in their pavlovas, and New Zealanders, not really a surprise, but they really like kiwi <laughs> in the pavlovas. So thought that was really interesting. Um, and they're both kind of they're kind of national dishes in both or it's a national dish in both kind of countries. And there's sort of rivalry between them as to like who did it first, who had who invented it. And I'm going to put it to you that we never really know who invented a dish because they evolve over time. And in the case of Pavlovic, kind of that we're going to talk about how about it, but it's it you can kind of go back hundreds of years. And, and see different meringue desserts, um, or at least a couple of hundred years. So in my view, pavlova is owned by all of us as a collective, as a human race, and loved by all of, a lot of us, but it's also owned by none of us as individuals or nations or groups. Um, so the, what kind of inspired me with talking about this is kind of lazy food history have you ever been reading a recipe and at the top in the little paragraph that they they have at the top it says something about a piece of history that you're like really this is very highly questionable guys and I often find because I read a lot of uh, cookbooks and recipes that the same stories will just be repeated and repeated and repeated And there's like no actual evidence for any of the claims, which really annoys me. Yes, it's niche. Yes, it's largely inconsequential, but I find it annoying and outrageous. Um, You know, so you might hear stories like, oh, a chef served, served this thing as a joke, but then it became the thing that everyone loved. Or these bakers saved the city with a funny shaped bread. Um, which I was reading about when I was reading about pretzels, by the way. Um, I just, I, really? Maybe it's true. I don't know. But like, it seems, um, it seems like you should provide some evidence for this anyway. And what you f- tend to find is that the truth is rarely as straightforward as a lot of these things claim. Often it's tied up with like really like weird, like, bits and bobs of historical context that might be to do with religion or it might be to do with laws, like, um, I don't know, you can you can't sell a round bread on this day of the year. So they made it square. Like honestly, sometimes really strange things like that. Um and let me give you an example so, about how the truth is rarely as straightforward. So something that you read about if you read about um butter cake from St. Louis in uh, the Midwest of the USA is that the baker added too much butter but then everyone actually really liked it but actually there are competing claims about whether that's true, whether it's a different baker and then if you look at recipes from northern Europe where we have historically relied on animal fats like butter and lard as opposed to our Mediterranean cousins who thrive on olive oil, which is much healthier, um as it happens. I like, I, I do like both, but anyway. um But you tend to find very similar th- creations in some cases to the St. Louis, the St. Louis rather butter cake. Sorry, I'm pronouncing it as if I'm French, which which doesn't really work. Uh, so you do find some similar creations, and I, I've found one in particular. It's like a. You get a lot of yeasted cakes in um, Germany and its sort of surrounding countries. And I found one that was like a yeasted butter cake, which really comes quite close, um, I think, to a kind of modern um, St. Louis butter cake. So essentially, like, you know, the Midwestern baking is actually very heavily influenced by all of the European migration. Somebody was probably making a similar cake. And yes, it has evolved and changed over time, and it is unique to St. Louis, but at the same time, it has got a history. Um, So you can look at lots of different bakes in this way. You can trace back their history and you'll find that in days gone by, things were different. You can look back at mince pies, for example, one of my favorite treats. And a few hundred years ago, um, as I've mentioned before, they contained meat. They were much bigger Uh, and now you just get these really quite small little treats that have dried fruit, brandy, sometimes nuts in them and and suet, either vegetable or it can be beef suet as well. And then another one is you scones used to be made with oats and they're not anymore. I found that quite interesting. They used to be these like large oaty rounds which makes sense because they're I think their origins are actually Scottish, and you know, regular Easter wine. Wonderful Belgian um, baking writer, food writer. You know, her her baking book about Britain is called Oats from N- Oats from the North, Wheat from the South. So in Scotland, uh, oats were a really important crop. Um, and it makes sense that you would use oats in scones in that case, as well as in oat cakes that they still have, which are like a kind of biscuit that's it's not sweet. You can ha- you can sweeten them, but you can also serve them with cheese. That's more common. Uh, really good with soft cheese. I love that. Yeah, so they still have like oaty things today. Um, another example is the is shortbread, another often Scottish treat, uh, but, or or originally Scottish, but potentially, again, it's not, nothing's originally anything, but like, yeah, it's, you get a lot of shortbread in Scotland, put it that way, and it's quite an important tradition, but it's kind of ancestor was like a hardened, twice-baked rusk with much, much less butter in it, Um. So yeah, I just find, found all of that really, really interesting and was wondering, like, why is this? And it got me thinking, well, a lot of food heritage was never written down and recipes were passed down orally, often by women as well. Um, so maybe that affected how things were recorded, maybe because cooking was often women's work. It wasn't as valued as other things so nobody thought to write anything down and also things could change generationally so like each new generation puts its own spin on it and that's fine or you know or changes it a little bit to their tastes and that's that's normal that's part of life or um, the other reason is that things would have been passed down orally because prior to the industrial revolution a lot of us couldn't actually read or write not that long ago like if I think about it my family I'm 34 my parents had me quite late but probably my great great grandparents probably couldn't read or write like that's quite mind blowing to think about it like that um I know what they did a lot of them were like dock workers and stuff like that so like they didn't really yeah they were laborers so they probably weren't taught to read or write before um compulsory schooling And the other reason I thought maybe things changed so much is things like access to ingredients. So what we can get hold of changes. Um, What we can grow changes with modern farming methods. What we can store and how we store it changes with things like refrigeration. Um, How we make things like kitchen technology as well as farming. And the techniques that we use. You know, there's often... there's there's always innovation happening in cooking and baking so all of these things will have changed things over the years and one of the reasons why pavlova became popular was because um, this is actually prior to the electric whisk but there was like a hand cranked whisk and once that was kind of um, more available it was kind of available to people it become much Le- it became much less of a horrendous nightmare to whisk eggs or whisk egg whites. Um so that's that's one of the reasons why Pav got more popular. But I guess one of the reasons why some of these stories, like the St. Louis Butter cake story that I talked about, those stories are kind of repeated partly because we have a bit of an obsession, in my opinion, with authenticity, like, if I go out for a meal, everyone's offering trying to offer me the most authentic experience. And I don't know. like it's become almost a bit of a dirty word to have like British Chinese food or British Indian food, but that's normal. That's things have adapted and changed because of sometimes it might not be a great thing. It's like you know people aren't making the effort to understand the culture. that's that's true. But sometimes it's okay, right, to have a different thing once people have migrated. I think that that's acceptable. Um, I think that's normal and I think it's like, it's actually a good thing, right? If I go to Montreal, I'll get a very different bagel from the bagels that I will get in London. And similarly, if I go to New York, it'll be a different style of bagel. If I go to Eastern Europe, I will find things that are like bagels, but they are, but, but slightly different, right? So, you know, think about a soft pretzel versus a crunchy, hard pretzel. Like the two are barely like related. And like, if you think about it, they have very little in common other than the shape. So I think that it, you know, it, it can lead to a a whole, like whole new worlds of possibilities, which I don't think is a bad thing. Um. But yeah, we really do have a kind of obsession with authenticity. Um, if I go to an Italian restaurant, especially, it's it's the word of the day. It's, but actually, when you look at it, when you look at the history of some of the dishes, for example, tiramisu, that is from the 1970s, as we discussed on this podcast. Um, some of them are not that old at all. Pizza is very old, but it's so old that we don't really know who invented it. And there are very similar words like pide in turkish which clearly come from the same stem there are similar dishes in loads of different um there are in, in loads of different uh like parts of the world because it is essentially just stuff on bread you know so it's not really as <laughs> kashapuri in georgia for example um you know so there there are big differences don't get me wrong um, and I think there are unique styles of pizza. There's Roman pizza, there's Neapolitan pizza, which but comes with a specific set of characteristics, but there's just so much crossover. We're just not good at keeping things the way they were. And quite frankly, why should we? <laughs> um, the other reason is like I don't, I think that it's good that we don't keep, we haven't kept things the way they were. If I was to eat my ancestors diet, it would be incredibly boring. Like maybe if you go back far enough to the hunter gatherers, you might get some different berries. You might get, you know, like a different meat, but essentially you would, you would have to eat the same thing repeatedly because that's much more, um, it's much more economical, right? If you're going to kill a big animal, you're going to have to keep eating it right, um, and you're limited to what's around you, and loads of our crops, and even our wild plants, um, as I found out on my foraging uh, walk, are from other other continents and other countries, and they've come here via, I don't know, migration, um, people carrying seeds with them, um, yeah, sometimes they're invasive species, and they weren't meant to to be wilded but they have become wild um so there's it's really like yeah it's like where do you stop because you know potatoes are a very important part of lots of diets including um famously the irish diet um they are native to south america it's like where do you you know you could trace and trace and trace and trace and trace And you just eventually you're just like, okay, this doesn't belong to anyone (laughs) or or it belongs to all of us. Um, Yeah, so our diet would be very limited. My sort of peasant ancestors would have probably eaten bread three times a day. The English ones, Um, very small amount of Scottish ancestry that I would have had maybe ate oats like and then they would have had some root vegetables, you know, maybe some preserves. Um, year round and then some fresh fruit or soft fruit rather in the summer you know so really quite a limited diet and even if you were rich you probably had quite a limited diet because one of the ways they displayed their wealth was through eating expensive meat and not eating poor people food so they had really quite a crap diet Um, you know as and and that's what that's something we understand today that they didn't have that kind of knowledge about the body then um but yeah we do have this kind of, of obsession with authenticity and I think that it drives tourism it drives sales of commercial goods um makes people feel like they're kind of accessing some sort of truth or like the best thing that you can get through eating ice cream or pasta or soup or something I find it a very strange phenomenon of human culture um because like there's there is just... there just is no such thing um so what does all this have to do with pavlova um sorry i just wanted to give you one more example i remembered it and forgot it again and then remembered it again which is just about pastries so and i'm talking about yeasted pastries like croissant pan au chocolat etc we like i i've always thought of them as french for a long time In France, they're called viennoiserie because actually they are Viennese. But often we also in English call them Danish pastries. And that's because um, Viennese bakers migrated to Denmark and made the pastries in Denmark. And then that's how some British people came across them. So it's like these pastries have travelled from vienna to De- denmark to england to france so it's like but obviously they are an incredibly important part of french culture now you know as well as uh, austrian etc so and danish and so yeah okay i'm going to take a breath let's talk about pavlova so pavlova it's claimed it was claimed was named after a Russian ballerina who toured um, Australia and New Zealand in 1926. And it was thought that this maybe was from a dessert that was originally had jelly in it, um, which was written down in 1926 in New Zealand. So for a while, Kiwis were sort of saying this was originally ours. but a duo of one Australian and one um, New Zealand, New Zealander uh, historians, two historians, did loads and loads of research and found that it has a much, much longer history. And so these historians are called Andrew Paul Wood and Annabel Utrecht, they're my new heroes. And Utrecht says that she must have looked through at least 20,000 newspapers And at least 10,000 cookbooks. And I am not joking. (laughs) That's a level of um, obsession that I identify with and aspire to. Um, They also found over 150 recipes for Pavlova like desserts, all published before 1926, including one called Strawberries Pavlova from 1911. Not only that, but they also found more than 50 dishes named Pavlova sweet savoury and everything in between including one that was a a dish involving frog's legs so she was kind of a celebrity of her day and I guess you know naming a dessert after her um, kind of gave it some glamour yeah right or naming a dish after her so um, but they researched dishes like Spanish a wind torta or Torte, I think it was probably pronounced because it was um, eaten by the German royal family, um, which is a sort of elaborate, very camp Baroque meringue cake. Um, uh, it, incredible stuff. I don't know how it doesn't crack, to be honest. Um, maybe it doesn't just split back together again. Um, also one called Schaumtorte, which means foam cake, which was mistransliterated as charm cake, Um, but it's just a meringue cake, basically one called Beza Torta or kiss cake, which is like a layered toasty meringue situation. And they also researched forgotten torts of 1940s USA and and before, which are meringues left to cool in the oven overnight. They said that their database (laughs) so far includes 1024 variations on pavlova. And I just loved this. So this is something that I loved that they said. So Annabelle Utrecht said, the pav will always be a kiwi and Aussie dish because we've taken it to heart. And I just loved that sentiment because as I said at the start, I think that pavlova belongs to you and me and them and us, but not solely to one country or group because we all love it, we all bake it, so it's for all of us and in the um in the newsletter i've just linked to a couple of articles that really helped inform my research on pavlova so i hope that you found that entertaining and interesting and in the next part of the podcast i'm going to be talking about some rules of thumb for making a good pavlova and how to make it your own let's talk ratios so a common ratio for French meringue or and pavlova seems to be one um, egg white to 1.5 sugar. That's in weight. So for example, 100 grams of egg whites to 150 grams of sugar, 200 grams of egg whites to 300 grams of sugar. And I think that's really, really useful to know. You could weigh your egg whites first and then times that by 1.5. That's how much sugar you should add. And it means that you can scale things up and down. Um, I have read that a 1 to 1. 1.6 ratio is more stable. So if you prefer, you could do, you know, times it by 1.6. I was quite happy with 1.5. I preferred to have a really toasty, crisp meringue. Um, not quite as sweet, still very sweet. But and I don't really mind a few cracks to be honest here or there it's not really my problem um, but I'll leave that up to you to decide what you want to do and then I add cream of tartar and corn flour to mine adding corn flour is kind of standard and then some sort of base or acid um, is common as well Um so Basically the the base, the cream of tartar in my case, or you can use things like white wine vinegar or lemon juice, prevents the egg proteins from wanting to stick together. So instead encourages those to bind with sugar. And that will essentially, even when meringue is baked, it wants to try to revert back to its previous form. And that helps slow that down so it doesn't start kind of weeping. Um, too quickly and also it means that it whips up faster as well actually because of um, want you know because of it discouraging the egg proteins from sticking together the corn flour helps provide body and a marshmallowy texture I'm not 100% on the science of that Um, if I find out I will let you know but I did kind of understand the science with the base I thought that was really interesting to include um the second thing to be aware of is how you want to bake this I quite like going low and slow because I really like a toasty kind of light like, like kind of golden meringue and then I don't mind if it softens on contact with the cream and fruit like I'm happy with that if you want a more marshmallowy meringue you want you want to make it quite thick so that you've got those different textures and then you want to kind of start with a slightly higher temperature and then turn it down once you've put the meringue in the oven. Um, and then you kind of get, you know, a crisper outside and a more marshmallowy middle in theory and in practice, to be fair. Um, and the other thing that's quite useful to know is, If you can try and leave your meringue to cool down in the oven without opening the door. So once you've given it its time, you might want to, you know, like turn it down or just turn it off if it's on really low, like mine was, and then leave it there to cool. Now, if you've made a big meringue, I kind of think cracks are inevitable. Um, It's very difficult to get away from them. it just shrinks as it cools. So it's just really difficult to sort of avoid them altogether. But this does help minimize them. Um, I'll put it, let's put it that way. Now, since meringue is really, really sweet and not very flavorsome, in my opinion, it wants it's kind of a foil for the for using really tart fruit and quite and really barely sweetened or completely unsweetened cream. That's my kind of approach to this. Um, you know, if you're baking or making this for people that don't have a sweet tooth, they, I think Pav is just not the dessert for them. I think you do have to have somewhat of a sweet tooth. Um, but I really like Pav if it's kind of well balanced. That's what I would say. Um, but yeah, if, if they don't like sweet things, at much at all. It's not, make them a dark chocolate something or other, you know, or like something with custard that's not, that's, you not put much sugar in it, you know, just something that's maybe a coffee dessert, right? Like just not something that's quite as sugary as meringue because it just is, you just can't get away from it. Um, But yeah, as I say, I think it can be a fantastic kind of canvas for your fruit and your cream. Like, that's how I approach it. Um, So you can also layer up your flavours and kind of really make pav your own. So if you're going to try and flavour a meringue, that can be tricky because meringue is already quite a fine balance of, like, chemically speaking. Um, You know, if you get fat in the mixture, it doesn't whip up properly. You know, everyone knows that. Um, But just adding a large amount of anything is going to really change the chemical structure. So you want to avoid that. So you can add, but you can add things, add things that are very flavorful in small amounts. Extracts, um, maybe a ground spice like cinnamon or cardamom or ground star anise. Maybe rose water, that's quite strong. Um, You could also use citrus zest. The zest is obviously so useful in baking because it doesn't change the chemical structures of things very much. Um, you could use freeze-dried fruit, which I've seen used quite a lot these days. So if you buy freeze-dried fruit, grind them in a food processor, and then you've got this kind of dust, and that can be used in the meringue itself. Um, I've not done that yet, but I think it's a fantastic idea and would probably work a treat. I've linked to a recipe that uses um, freeze dried raspberries in the newsletter. Um, so yeah, you can flavor the meringue as long as you understand what you're doing, you can, you can do anything, right. As long as you understand the science of it, um, you can definitely flavor the cream slightly more easily as well. So you could infuse it with tea. You can infuse it with herbs, use sparingly, you know, you could stick a rosemary, um, sprig in there. Or I stuck a few leaves of basil in one of the creams that I'm going to be talking about in a sec. Um, you could you can infuse it with thyme. Um, you could also infuse it with whole spices like a cinnamon scroll or a star anise, um I don't know what they're called a, an anise star, I guess, or a vanilla pod. Um you can you know if you once you've scraped the seeds out, you can just you can actually use the pod as well to flavor things. You could add extracts, um, once again, such as rose water or vanilla. You could add zest here as well, or in, instead, and finally, you could add liqueur or spirits or a fortified wine. If you are going to add an alcohol, it's not going to whip up as easily. Um, so just that can be nice, like it's nice to have a soft whip, I think, but you don't want to, you don't want it so soft that it's still just liquid completely and you've not added any air so just be aware of that and just don't add very much um, you know maybe a teaspoon or a tablespoon like and then just go from there see how it's going um, so my suggestions you know Irish cream I'm not actually a big fan but a lot of people are um, from Boise which is a raspberry liqueur which I really love Kirsch cherry liqueur Pims. Um I don't know how to describe PIMs. It tastes like summer and we have it in in the UK a lot. Um, we have it with lemonade usually and, and loads of cut up fruit. Oh, it's just so good. It is just it does just taste of summer to me. Um along with that and along with elderflower. Um you could use things like rum, an aromatic gin, mezcal. Oh, love mezcal. You could use, um, as I said, a fortified wine. So maybe masala or, ch- or sherry or port. Um, I don't know how port would taste, but anyway. So yeah, as I say, just use it sparingly and you'll be grand. And then you could also flavour your fruit. So you could make a compote or puree and you can infuse that with spices or herbs if you like. Um, or you can just keep it plain and simple, maybe with a bit of citrus soup juice and a bit of sugar i was just enjoying the simplicity of just macerating my fruit um, something that nicola lamb suggests in kitchen projects is sort of macerating half of your fruit and i think it depends on what your fruit's like if your fruit is um, maybe not at its peak then i would i tend to use a tiny bit more sugar to really bring out the flavor of it almost like a seasoning um, whereas if it's like really at its peak, I think it's quite nice to like leave it plain or like macerate half of it or just add a very small amount of sugar. um so I tend to do like a ten to one ratio as a general rule, which I e ten grams of sugar per hundred grams of fruit um but, yeah, depending on the fruit, you can go more or less. And I also tend to add a bit of um, citrus, again depending on the fruit. So if it's a really tart fruit, I don't add citrus juice. I just leave it, just a bit of sugar. Um, so raspberry, plums, blackberries, I don't think they really need it. Adding zest might be nice, though, in some of those cases. Um, and passion fruit doesn't need it. Passion fruit can be used instead of citrus for uh, instead of citrus juice, by the way as a kind of acidic component. Um, yeah, whereas I think some more things that are more on the sweet side like peaches, strawberries, I might add a bit of citrus there to just really like help draw out the most interesting rounded flavors from the fruit. Okay, so there's my info dump about pavlova and I hope that it was useful or enjoyable or both. And now I'm going to be talking about two recipes. So one is a cherry and basil pavlova. Two is the the sugar plum tort. first up we've got quite a kind of classic pavlova of a cherry and basil pavlova not really classic in flavor but classic in format so it makes one big pavlova essentially which serves about six to eight people and I just I really like cherries I'm just enjoying all of the different soft fruits in season right now to be honest um, and I'm aware of Cherries and basil being paired together in lots of different recipes. It's, it's definitely not my original idea. Um, so I saw that uh Tava, which I was banging on about a while ago for ages and ages, and I'm still reading now and I'm still enjoying I'm still baking out of it. Um, if you're not familiar with this, this is a book about Romanian baking by Irina Georgescu, who is a Romanian cook who lives in Wales. Uh, in the UK. Uh, She's lovely and her book is fantastic and her book won the James Beard Media Award in the baking category. So it feels good that the judges, you know, acknowledge my good taste and I really look forward to being included on panels in the future. Um, I'm joking, but I think it is a really well-deserved award. I just love Tava. It's so flipping good. Truly a great book it's simple but so good like oh I just I can't get enough of it um so yeah there's a cake in there that uses cherries and basil which I might try making at some point and she says that you can make that same cake with various different soft fruits so I might have a go um Anyway, so let's talk about the ingredients. So we've got 188 grams of castor or superfine sugar. Slightly weird measurement because, you know, it, you tend to measure the sugar based on the egg whites, basically. So um, that's that's the best way to, to sort of go. 120 grams of egg whites, which is equivalent to roughly to three UK or EU large egg whites that I've included the weight so that if you've got eggs of a different size, doesn't matter, you can just weigh your egg whites. You also want a scant tablespoon of corn flour and a smidge of cream of tartar, so about an eighth of a teaspoon or you can go up to a quarter of a teaspoon if you want, um, but don't go too much. And then that's for the meringue. For the cream, I did about 300 milliliters of cream, which is like one us cup plus four tablespoons um and then five basil leaves um you can weigh that as well by the way so cream the only thing that i think is really strongly different is oil because oil is less dense um significantly less dense than things that are water-based but um cream is less dense than milk which is slightly less dense than water. But in terms of the difference between their weight compared to water, it is not significant enough for you to have to get out a different thing to measure it in. You can just weigh 300 grams of cream and it is very, it's like really close to 300 mil, like honestly. Um, so, anyway, that to one side for a second. You want about five basil leaves if you want to infuse the cream with basil. Um, You want a a teaspoon and a half of vanilla extract. I just found that really rounded it out more. The basil on its own was giving me bruschetta. So I found that I needed that as well. But once I'd had that balance, it was good. And then two tablespoons of icing sugar. Then for the fruit, about 300 grams of soft fruit. I use sweet cherries, but you could use apricots, peaches, strawberries, whatever you like. You could use a mixture. Um, So there's a Nigella recipe where she uses strawberries and passion fruit together. And she kind of macerates the strawberries in passion fruit juice, um, which is really nice. So, yeah, definitely feel free to use a combination. Um, You could also use different, um, you know, you could use mint as well or instead of uh, basil potentially um you also want 30 grams of caster sugar um so as as i said it's like a 10 to one ratio for me roughly speaking but you can you can kind of adapt it towards your tastes um and as to how tart that fruit is as well Um, and then two teaspoons of lemon or lime juice and then a garnish so you could use black pepper That kind of pairs really well with basil, black pepper, as you probably know. Um, Alternatively, you could just use one or two basil leaves that you've you've torn up or chopped very finely. Um, Yeah, or if you're gonna use mint, you could use mint, whatever you wanna do. So in terms of how we make this, we infuse our cream. So we wanna place the cream in a small saucepan with our leaves. Um, bring it to a bring it to a simmer, then turn it off. Let it cool in the pan. Um, give it a stir. Remove the basil leaves. Um, transfer it to a bowl. Cover the top of um, the the cream with cling film to help prevent it forming a skin. Um, and then, when it's cool enough to put it in the fridge, stick it in the fridge until you're ready to use. And whip it up from cold. Then make your meringue. So you want to preheat your oven to 120 degrees C, which is 250 degrees Fahrenheit or 100 100 C fan. Draw a large circle on baking paper, around a sort of nine inch uh, tin. Don't cut the circle out. Place the baking paper on a large baking sheet. Then put your egg whites, cream of tartar, caster sugar or super fine sugar, corn flour, or cornstarch um same thing um just different names for it um, but you want the pure starch variety not something that's like yellow um and a bit of salt like a pinch in a stand mixer or a clean large mixing bowl and use an electric whisk to to whisk that on medium high until it holds stiff peaks about eight minutes this is quite an interesting technique a lot of techniques call for you to Um, Whisk the egg whites until they're frothy and then gradually add the sugar. This takes a totally different approach of just dump it in and whisk it. And it works just as well. Um, So I don't see the problem (laughs) personally. And then once you've got your um, meringue to stiff peaks, you wanna use a spatula to just dollop that onto the middle of the circle and then use an offset spatula to spread it out gently into the circle fashion a large dip in the middle where you can pile your fruit and cream once you've baked it and cooled it and then bake your meringue for about 90 minutes turn the oven off and leave it to cool for a few hours to prevent cracking it will probably crack a bit because it's a big meringue but it'll help prevent cracking if you cool it very gradually Um, then prepare your fruit by pitting or hulling as necessary slicing it into chunks if you need to do that and um, I just halved my cherries and pitted them strawberries I might do in quarters if they're very large ones but I might do them in halves if they're small I will you could even do a range of sizes it doesn't actually matter because you're not it's just about how it eats and what you want out of that right if you want big chunks or not um, it's not, um, kind of going to affect anything cause you're not baking them. Um, and then you want to just mix that with the sugar and the lemon juice. If you're using it and set that aside, then whip your cream. Once it's really cold with your icing sugar and vanilla to soft peaks, and then to assemble, you simply spread your cream on the meringue and then your fruit on top and garnish it at the last minute. And that's it, that's your pav. Very, very simple, delicious, wonderful treats. Okay, so next up we've got our Sugar Plum Fairy Pavlova Torte. I called it that because it's extremely camp, Um, but I don't really know what it is, okay? So like the, 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 Ed Kimber calls his a, he called it a strawberries and cream, gatto concord but his looked more like a gatto concord than mine i couldn't be bothered putting all of the meringue on the outside and faffing around i'm just not that style of baker i admire people who are but it's just not my it's not for me <laughs> um so for me it was just three layers and then a few bits that i just stuck on the side <laughs> uh, <laughs> very non artistically um but yeah, Gato Concord is normally a chocolate thing, by the way. So, um, so it's not technically a Gato Concord. Is it a Spanish torta? No, not really, because it's not fancy enough. Um, is it a is it a layered pavlova? That's probably what it is. But whatever it is, it's very nice, and I very much enjoyed it, and you will too. Um, so I changed it up a bit. I used the base recipe from Ed Kimber, but I changed it up a bit because. I've simplified it I've not like done anything with the fruit other than just macerating them whereas he made a sort of um compote thing um I used less sugar in the fruit I used a different fruit <laughs> I used plum rather than strawberries That's is why I feel comfortable saying this is kind of my recipe because really all I've kept to be honest is the meringue um And I did my own thing kind of with the cream as well. So I used a slightly different ratio of cream. Um, But yeah, you know, other than that, it's the same. (laughs) Um, So it makes one tort, which serves about 10 to 12 people. So for our ingredients, for our meringues, we want six UK or EU large egg whites, which is 240 to 250 grams. Um, 375 grams of caster or superfine sugar, um, you can use um, granulated by the way in meringue but I just find it doesn't, it's not as good, um, you can also make your own superfine sugar by just pulsing it a few times in a food processor um, from granulated, it's up to you, you can absolutely make meringue with granulated, it's not a problem but I just I think it's just easier to use uh, superfine. It just dissolves quicker, basically. Um, where was I? Yeah, so we've got um, blah, blah, blah. We want a quarter of a teaspoon of cream of tartar, a small pinch of salt, and one and a half tablespoons of corn flour. For our cream, 500 mils of double cream, two teaspoons of vanilla extract, That could be mils or grams, by the way, of cream. Two teaspoons of vanilla extract, bean paste or sugar. One to two tablespoons of icing sugar. Really not very much. Um. And then a small pinch of salt. Okay, and then for our fruit, we want about 400 grams of fruit, which is about half a pound, just under half a pound. And it could be plums, raspberries, blackberries. Anything with good acidity. Um, and you can also mix mix and match fruits as well. So I've seen an, uh, an Ottolenghi meringue roulade where he does, or they do, because I don't think it's just him. Um, but yeah, the Ottolenghi team designed, made one where it was with peach and blackberry, which sounds really intriguing. So you could definitely, you know, mix it up, make it your own, do try some interesting combinations and then also if you want to garnish it with a few with a few sprigs of thyme or a little bit of mint if you're using something with larger leaves you'll want to chop it finely if you're using something with small leaves you could just pick them off and I've included this because I really really like the combination of plum with thyme but I also think it goes well with peach as well thyme like it goes well with a lot of different of those types of soft fruit. Nectarine, it goes well with nectarine. Apricots, it goes well with. It goes well with blackberries as well. And I, I think mint goes really well with raspberries, strawberries, passion fruit and kiwis. So it's quite a nice little kind of herby lift to just garnish it with something at the end. So to make your meringue... You want to, again, preheat your oven to 120 C, 250 Fahrenheit, or 100 C fan. Draw three 8-inch circles on parchment paper. You could use, um, instead, 8-inch cake tins. But what I found was that they wanted to stick to the sides. So I feel like if you have baking spray, that's where you want to use your baking spray. I don't have it because it's not common in this country. But... Um, one problem with the circles on baking sheets was I found my oven was not big enough for this job um so yeah it's slightly tricky but you either want three eight inch circles or you can use cake tins if you spray them with baking spray um so it's yeah it's it's fine um and then yeah you want to whisk everything together as before to make your meringue then spread it onto the circles you could pipe it but I thought spreading it actually worked better to cohere it together and then if you've got any leftover meringue you can make some little blobs or lines um on the edges of the baking sheets not edges but like away from the circles and you can use those to sort of decorate at the end if you want um And then bake that for 90 minutes, switch the oven off, leave it to cool overnight or at least for a few hours. And you can store your meringue ahead of time as well. I should have mentioned that earlier, like it depends on how humid the environment is. If it's really humid, they won't last at all very long, but they can last up to a week um, in in a sort of airtight container. Once you've made your meringue, you can prepare your fruit, mix your fruit, caster sugar and lemon juice. If using, leave to stand. Um, And then prepare your cream. Whisk your cream with vanilla, sugar and salt until holding soft peaks or maybe less than that, but until you've whipped a decent amount of air into it. And then you want to layer up your dessert. Okay, so start with a little bit, a little dab of cream just to stick the meringue down onto the plate or serving platter, then put a, a layer, one of your layers of meringue, dollop some cream and spread it around, then your fruit, spread that around or dollop it in, dot, dot it all over, you know, so you've got a nice spread, and then you layer it up again, meringue, cream, fruit, and then again, meringue, cream, fruit, um, and that's your top, and then add any little garnishes if you want, you know, Could be black pepper, it could be um, the herbs I talked about. And then, crucially, I should have said this before. So, actually, before you garnish it, this is a crucial step leave that in the fridge for about four hours. And what happens is you get all of these wonderful different textures of meringue. So, the meringue doesn't actually weep that much because fridges I don't know if you know this but fridges are very dry environments. So it helps to keep the outside of the meringue actually quite crisp. But then the inside is obviously getting soaked with cream and it goes all soft and marshmallowy and wonderful. So I just really loved the textures of this dish. I thought it was really fabulous and I look forward to hopefully making it again. My partner has asked for a pavlova for her birthday, which is in a couple of weeks. So I've given her 24 different options in total because I've given her four different formats or styles of, of Pavlova. So does she want a meringue roulade? Does she want a tort um, with layers? Does she just want a massive meringue? Does she want like little mini ones so we can all have our own little meringue? And then, <laughs> then I've given her six different flavoring options as well. So I've like, do you want blueberry and lemongrass? Do you want strawberry and rose? Um, Do you want, I don't know, like, what was it? Peach and blackberry, like the Ottolenghi one. Um, I've given her six different flavoring options. So I'll let you know what she chooses. Maybe she'll go for something completely different. But yeah, so in total, that's 24 options because it's four times six. Four different formats, six different flavorings. I always like need a spreadsheet Um, when I plan people's birthday cakes. It's absurd. So, yeah, I really look forward to that. I think I'm kind of jealous of her because her birthday is in is at the start of July when there's so much lovely stuff in season. Mine is in January and it's like everyone's poor because it's towards the end of January before anyone's had been paid. And it's just been Christmas. No one's got any money no one wants to go out, everyone's miserable, it's still really dark, very little is in season, maybe blood oranges, that's about it, so it's just like, or maybe some forced rhubarb, but that's more February, so it's just really like, I don't enjoy having a January birthday, put it that way, and I'm slightly jealous, but it's wonderful that I now get to bake for her and celebrate her during summer, so that's, so that's a positive. Okay, I think I've banged on plenty for this episode, and um, so all that's left for me to talk about is what is coming up next. I just wanted to briefly mention a tip that I forgot to say which is from Nicola Lamb I didn't try it out because I don't have one but she suggests that in order to help it prevent cracking you could use a pizza stone which is really clever isn't it so I think the idea of using something that cools down quickly near you know near Pavloville or you could just reduce the heat gradually in the oven just you know I think to an extent as I said I think cracks are sometimes inevitable to an extent and you, really we're trying to minimize them rather than just complete, like, um, completely remove them. Because um, I think that's part of the joy of a meringue as well as that it is so, it is such a interesting texture and it is so light. Um, but I think using a pizza stone sounds genius. So I just want to mention that in case any of you want to try it out and you've got one. Um, so what is coming up next? Well, okay. So oh, I've been having some issues recently in terms of my like mental health and um just my social anxiety is really like off the scale. Um, so I'm I'm kind of hoping to organize a few interviews with people, but I'm just I'm kind of struggling. Um, I I have likely have undiagnosed ADHD. That's just this seems to be rampant in my family. Um, God bless us all. And, um, so I think organizing things and then on top of that, having social anxiety, which I've had for, for about eight years, uh, not a fun condition, really, really not fun. Um, just makes it really hard for me sometimes to do these things, but I do love doing this podcast and it's a real labor of love and I love talking to people. So I'm going to try, try my best. Um, anyway what is coming up next is next time I'm going to be talking about galettes so kind of continuing to really celebrate soft fruits really um but yeah I'm going to be talking about what I like about galettes good pastry recipe um for really crispy flaky pastry how much fruit to use got a bit of a rant on that one I'm afraid um yeah and what how you can kind of make it your own interesting flavor combinations etc so yeah next up we have got galettes um so I will see you or talk to you in two weeks hope everything is okay where you are take care happy baking yeah see you soon bye PS today is who do I have to bribe to get fresh sour cherries I know that they are commonly grown in Turkey and I live in a Turkish area but I cannot find them anywhere I'm just so confused by this and I'm (sighs) I just don't know where to I don't know where to start I've seen frozen ones in a big supermarket but I don't know how good they are I just I want to I've never tried I've never had one fresh um or frozen actually for that matter. I've only had them in syrup and they taste very different in syrup and I'm just desperate to try them. I don't know where to go, guys. So I'll keep you updated on my sour cherry quest. Um but yeah. Um good to talk to you today and follow me on Instagram if you don't already. It's Home Baking Pod. And I post there like some BTS content a uh, bit behind the scenes um content stuff that I don't necessarily include in the episodes because I bake so much that not all of it even goes into this podcast so um it's not it's an obsession um yeah but yeah take care bye